Great, so thank you and um, welcome back to this uh, third session, third breakout type session of the day um, after lunch. Um, the session today is titled Interactive Media, um, but I think uh, if, if with your permission we might sort of rephrase that, that title, which feels, it seems a little hackneyed, and I think what, while I'm not summing up in a, as a pithy title, I think what we're talking about, and certainly when I look at the work of our three panelists, we're looking at work where, um, be it the audience, the public, um, the user, whatever term you care to use, is at the heart of the experience and is actively involved in the, in the experience and direction and creation um, uh, of the experience itself. And I think that's, that's what we're, we will be talking about today. Um, so there are some of you, you've all done this twice before, um, so you know the deal. Um, with the guards, the session, they're quite short, so we'll try and get quite a lot done. We'll hear from the three panelists, we'll briefly talk about their experiences and their provocations, even. Um, and then, for those of you who've not been in this uh, hall uh, in the morning, we'll then um, have some quick discussions on our tables, just to, to see what's on our mind with the people around us, and then we'll break to some questions to the panel and to each other. Um, so, really, really delighted to be introducing the panelists today. First up, on the far side, we have Ben Templeton, who heads up, uh, who's creative director of an agency in Bristol called ThoughtDen, um, who do lots of playful type projects with the likes of Tate and uh, National Museums of Scotland and uh, the South Bank Centre. In the middle, we have Rosie Fairchild, who runs a company called Splash and Ripple, also based in Bristol. Um, and uh, near side to me, we have Matt Adams, co-founder of Blast Theory, who I guess has been doing this stuff before there were even names for it. So it's great to have um, such a, a range of talent on the, on the, uh, the podium today, I guess. So we'll start um, with Ben, who will just give us some thoughts on his experience on this thing. Hello. Um, Thought Den is a, a small specialist agency uh, based in Bristol, and I'm going to talk to you very briefly in, in triplets. Uh, so the first thing is I'll talk to you about three projects that we've done. Uh, the second thing is I'll talk to you about um, three ways I think our industry, the arts and culture sector, is engaging really well with audiences and new technology. Um, and the third thing I'll talk about maybe three common pitfalls when it comes to um, our cultural sector and technology. So thought then work across web, mobile, and installation. Um, a web project we've recently done is for the Science Museum. It's a game about pain, which isn't the obvious topic of choice. But as an institution, the Science Museum believe firmly in the power of games to help educate. So um, it's called Ouch. And uh, you can play that online or in gallery. Um, the second project um, I'm most proud of is called Magic Tape Ball, and we produced that with Tate. That's obviously a mobile project. Um, essentially, it's an app that matches artworks to your surroundings based on uh, what's going on around you, the weather and the time of day. Hopefully, some of you have had a shake already. And the third project um, I'm very happy about is called Zoom, and it's an installation. Um, that we built for Bristol Zoo. And children are invited to do animal poses in front of it, like a giraffe or, a, or an elephant or a lion. 
And um, in doing that physical um, action, they unlock content that's projected on the wall. And um, we were really pleased with the results. By doing that physical action, the children seem to really engage in what they're doing. So those are three projects we've done. Um, in terms of what I feel like we're doing well as a, a community, um, or, or rather what we could do to, to maybe improve on that, is really learn the rhythm of your institution. So some institutions move really fast. In, they, they take those innovative steps um, in, in terms of technology. And perhaps other institutions, maybe more traditional museums, traditional galleries, are reluctant to take those steps. Um, and I think what's important is learning you know, the, the rhythm internally. Who, who is responsible for what? How can you do things anyway? How can you get the right people talking to each other so that it, what your activity matches the natural rhythm of your institution? Um, secondly, I think it's really important that you consult the experts. And obviously, I have a vested interest here. I mean, we're open for discussion. I'd love to, to talk to you more about um, technology. But it's really important that you let the experts um, in to this discussion. Um, also, in, you know, consult with communities and consult with your audience about developing exciting projects. Um, also, the, the third thing, I guess, on, on making good digital stuff, I think it's important that we're aware of soft innovation as opposed to hard innovation. By that, I mean we don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to slightly tweak. I mean, Apple's iPod was not what I would call a hard innovation when it came around. It was just a subtle shift on something, an excellent execution of an idea that in turn was innovative, but very soft. So those are the three things in terms of doing it right. Um, the three things I feel like maybe we aren't doing so well. I feel like a lot of us are still in awe of technology and perhaps um, take a jump too far sometimes. Um, or sometimes don't jump at all, we're a little too scared of getting involved, or perhaps try to do something so out there that it doesn't work. So we're still in awe of technology. Um, I guess playing around with it is the only way to overcome that. Uh, the second thing I think is perhaps at times we can aim for too wide an audience. So it's tempting, because there are so many stakeholders in these projects, we cast our net too wide. Technologies enabled one-to-one -one discussions and, and audiences are coming to expect that sort of treatment where there, there is that one-to-one -one personal interaction. And I think we're obliged to, to maybe move in that direction and narrow the, the net and, and really start to target niche audiences. There are 60 or so million people in the country. It's, it's not a bad thing to, to narrow down who we're wanting to target. And so finally, I think we tend to make the assumption that the audience care about what we're doing. And they don't necessarily care about what we're doing because they're being targeted on all sides from commercial pressures and other institutions, of course. So we really do need to make every effort to engage them. And, and that's sometimes a marketing issue. I would advise people to make sure there's budget available for marketing. But it's also just being mindful of the fact that, yes, we might love our paintings and our sculptures and um, our artifacts in our institutions. but the audience might not. So we have to find the stories that are relevant to them and relevant to the way they live their lives. Uh, that's my five. Thanks, Rosie. Yeah, go ahead, Rosie. Um, hello, my name's Rosie Fairchild. I'm um, the creative director at Splash and Ripple. Um, 
We say that we're purveyors of fine experiences, um, but essentially our, our mission is to make productions that affect the audience um, and kind of inspire them. Um, we do that by always starting with the feeling that we want to create in the audience, in, in the, the players, in the people that we're working with, um, and taking it from there. And we use whatever tools are appropriate for that. So that could be street games. Um, by street games, does anyone, do, can you put your hands up if you know what I mean by the term street game? Because that's kind of, okay, wicked. There you go. So for those who don't know, think of yourself being thrown into a, a real-life zombie apocalypse or um, trying to overthrow an authority or something like that. So we use, we use street games, we use theatre, we use digital cleverness, um, we use uh, electrical tape, we use string, we use um, tiny brown envelopes with blackberries kind of posted into them. It kind of depends on, on, on what it is that we're trying to achieve. Um, but essentially, it, it, it kind of, we'll use anything that creates a kind of viscerality in the experience that really makes the audience feel different about the world. Um, we make both live experiences um, in buildings, on the streets, and we also um, create installations in museums. So we're working with the Holborn Museum in Bath at the moment. Um, uh, and in fact, I'm going to talk to you a bit about that project now, um, because one of the things Rohan asked me to think about was kind of what could arts organisations do better? Um, and the first thing that popped into my head was um, be brave. Um, I guess, I, and by that I kind of mean be brave with the whole commissioning process. Right from the beginning, being kind of boldly ambitious through the commissioning process with a broad vision um, and not knowing exactly what, what, what you'll get at the end of it. Um, my experience of this uh, was with um, the, the, the Holborn Museum in Bath where we got um, on the React um, uh, uh, program, which is essentially a kind of hub for bringing together um, academics and creative companies um, to, to make exciting stuff using kind of digital innovation. And we uh, were in the culture-themed sandpit, and the sandpit was kind of a space where we could throw ideas around, and kind of make big, exciting um, uh, visions, and then kind of chip them down into something more makeable. But it, but it gave us the space that we, that we needed to really innovate and think about things differently. So, so we, went, we went to that with the Holborn Museum. Um, the Holborn Museum originally came to us and said, we want an app, we want something digital, we want, we want something for kind of younger people, make us an app. Um, and the Sandpit, the React Sandpit process, actually enabled us to turn that around from what could have been a disastrous, let's just make an app, to let's make something really, really interesting for the audience and also something that hits what the, the museum wanted to do, which was to create a group experience and to create something um, kind of that, that, that kind of young, well, all ages, but particularly younger people would be excited about. Um, and, and, and the reason that we did that was because we, were, we, we, we really threw the ideas around. Um, and also that the, the, the React program encouraged, uh, well, we had to work with an academic as part of the project. And that was particularly exciting for us as a company, because we hadn't really done that before. And it created a really interesting tension between um, us wanting to make something kind of inspiring and exciting and, and making the audience kind of feel something new, 
And um, the, the academic, who was this historian, um, Steve Poole, this is a great guy, who's interested in history from below and was really concerned that we make sure that the content um, of, of this experience um, was, was accurate. So there was a tension there, um, and it was, but it was a really good tension. And, and we ended up with this, which is a special listening device. It tunes you into events as they happen in the past. Um, and, and it was really popular. And essentially, it's, it's powered by an app. Don't tell anyone, but it is. That there's, there's kind of a magical phone inside the magic box. But people don't know that. And, um, and it means that people who might normally be turned off by kind of staring at screens um, don't have to engage with, with a smartphone. They're engaging with a magic object instead. So, and, and that was quite powerful. Um, so, so that was quite good. Rohan also just briefly um, wanted me to, wanted us to talk about the sort of common pit, pitfalls um, that we come across. And I guess I've already said it. It's the whole let's have an app kind of attitude of, oh God, we've got to do something di digital. This, there is this fear, this palpable fear of, okay, so let's, Let's throw, let's throw an app at it. We'll, we'll make an app. The young people will like it. It'll be great. We think that's how we can engage new audiences. Um, and that's, that's not always appropriate. Um, the other thing that I've got a bit of a beef about is labeling digital as like a separate thing. Um, I think that's problematic. Um, I think, I mean, I don't want to sort of say that the, the whole conference is a bit of a problem, but it's, <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's, if you're, if you're labeling digital as a separate thing, that's wrong. It's, it's not, it's, it's a color on the palette. It's something that um, we, we can use to make the stuff that we make as, as arts organizations or as creatives, but it, it's not a separate thing that has to be done separately. And as soon as we start sort of saying technology is this extra, Thing that needs to be serviced, then, then we're getting stuck. I mean, this uh, is, is, is a classic example, but this pen was once seen as a technology, and um, I don't know, I think, uh, I, I don't use it as a technology, I use it as something to write my ideas down with. Um, and if we did a, uh, if, if, we, if we created a, a, an exhibition um, kind of saying, let's have anything that's just drawn with a biro, um, it wouldn't be that interesting, but if you created something that was, okay, let's, let's have something, let's have some beautiful drawings or, or write some poetry, then suddenly that's interesting. And we're, we're using the technologies as a tool instead of as a kind of means to just have something technolo technologically something, making up words. Um, so my final thing is, I think, I don't know, but my advice is to, to start with and keep coming back to the experience that you want to create with your, with your audience, with your people that you're engaging with. Um, and yeah, just don't get too sidetracked with, with kind of all, the, all of the unknowns that kind of come, come with these new technologies. Just kind of go with it, I guess. Thank you, Rosie. Matt, please. Hi. Um, my name is Matt, and uh, I'm part of a company called Blast Theory. Uh, we make interactive projects. Um, and as a way of sort of tackling the, the kind of territory that, that Rohan asked us to, to, to um, think about, I want to kind of go back a little bit into um, my, my um, journey towards making interactive projects. I fell in love with theater in my teens. Uh, and had a, a particularly uh, amazing experience in a theatre where I realised that 
in that room at that moment, a whole bunch of ideas and possibilities seem to come into play with the kind of vividness that you can only get when you're an impressionable 13-year-old uh, experiencing culture perhaps uh, for the first time. And uh, as I became more um, determined that I wanted to work in theatre as a career, I came across the writings of Peter Brook and um, read a lot of uh, his, his kind of ideas about theatre and where theatre could take place. And of course, he famously went back to making theatre a very, very simple experience, um, sometimes with performed in, in, you know, even in a, uh, on, a, on a street side in, in Africa would be the place where that performance could take place. And as I thought more about theatre, it became clear to me that the things that I loved about it was the relationship between one person who could be the actor and another who could be the audience at a particular moment in time at a particular place. And that those four constituent parts were what made performance a vivid and exciting thing. And that those things were all fairly separate from the idea of a large building with a bar and a coat check and rows of seats. And that there could be many other ways in which you could create that vivid experience. And when I was going to, to, um, to gigs and to clubs, I felt that they had many of those same sort of properties, except that they didn't have anything like the intellectual rigor or the emotional nuance that I was looking for. And that somewhere in between, there could be a kind of hybrid place for making work. A couple of years ago, I came across uh, the work of Philippa Foote, who was an English philosopher and in the 1960s, she uh, gave, uh, 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 wrote for the first time about something that has come to be called uh, the trolley dilemma. I, could, could you just put your hand up if you know what I mean by the trolley dilemma? Has, are people familiar with that? Okay, good. I will explain the trolley dilemma. The trolley dilemma is, as I explain that it... Was zero you, hands, by the way, zero. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that you, uh, you perhaps have heard of without necessarily knowing the term. It's... It's a, uh, um, an ethical problem, which is, uh, in, in, in the first version of it, a train running out of control down a track where there are five people on that track who are all about to be killed by this runaway train. And you are stood to the side of this and can see what is going to happen. And next to you, you have a button which you can press to switch that train onto an alternate track and thus save those five people. The catch is that someone is also stood on that alternate track. And her question was, would you push the button? Would you kill someone in order to save five people? It's a simple utilitarian view of moral problems. And um, this has become very influential in the field of philosophy because it changed the mindset of philosophers slightly from thinking about how moral problems would be argued about among philosophers to thinking that it might be something that you go out and ask the public about, that you could actually go and test this idea and you could subtly change the wording of the problem and see if that had impacts onto the ways in which people thought about a moral problem like that. And the reason that I've kind of taken this detour to tell you about that is because for me that feels like it holds a very important insight as to what it means to be making art and culture at this particular moment in time, which is the level of interaction that is possible in the work, the artwork 
that we make ourselves is, has radically shifted. We don't necessarily see that so clearly yet. It's visible in certain places and in certain moments. But there is a new possibility for how we invite the public to engage with our work. That rather than reading a book of philosophy, they might be invited to consider and comment on and navigate an ethical problem themselves. And we've recently made a number of works in blast theory uh, that do precisely that, that look to put you in a position as a member of the public where you're navigating something that is ethically or morally complex in real time. So for example, in a piece of work called A Machine to See With, we invite you to rehearse a bank robbery in the real streets with a real bank, leading you ever more closely to the bank staking the bank out, deciding how you're going to rob it, and lead you right up to the door of that bank. And the charge of that work comes from your increasing disquiet about where this fictional piece of work ends and where the reality of the police getting involved and asking you what you're doing might begin, and trying to find a, 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 a kind of um, a moment of, of artistic and intellectual power that comes from that navigating that awkward territory. And I think that's really the, 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 you know, I had a whole list of sort of prosaic recommendations for how we may work around uh, some, of, some of the sort of uh, ideas of digital platforms. But I felt that on reflection and listening to this morning's presentations, it feels to me this is our one biggest elephant in the room, is that we're talking too readily about this set of changes as if it is something about marketing or something about distribution or something about business models when we're all involved in the process of making art and culture and that is the fundamental change that is going on. Thank you Matt. So we've heard from Ben talking about some pitfalls that the sector are facing, Rosie talking about the need for bravery and how making, making digital a thing isn't helpful. And we've, talk, we've spoken, and Matt's spoken about bringing it all right back to the creation of the work and that that's the context in which we are rather than the, everything that sits around it. So we've heard some great ideas in the room. Now's your chance to um, just have a conversation and share your ideas and re reflections on anything that's been shared or anything that's come up from you. If there's anything that's come up if, if you've been listening to any of these talks and something's annoyed you or irked you or made you smile, share that with your group. Um, uh, bring, some, bring some of that internal experience into the external experience. And after about five, ten minutes of conversation, we'll then break for some questions and you'll have a chance to speak to the panel again. Great, thank you. Okay, apologies for the third time for breaking off your conversations, probably at the most important, interesting point. So um, uh, now we just want to take, I want to come down and be a bit more Jerry Springer again. So we're going to, um, uh, does anybody have any questions or comments that arose from the conversations either from the, on the panel or within your groups that you'd like to share, get comment on, vent? <laughs> Anything at all? Yes, I saw a flick of a finger from your man there in the green. Hello, Gav Cross, 4D Creative. Thanks, Gav. Um, really celebrated what the 
the table was saying, particularly the focus back on the art, what I would, I would say to Matt that one of the notions of today is that research and development. And so your prosaic list is also useful for those of us starting on a journey. Can I come up to that? Yeah, so um, we were just having a discussion among ourselves, which was um, the, you know, Rosie's point, which I thought was absolutely right about don't just say we want an app. And I was saying to her, what would be the first thing that you should say if you don't want an app? What is it? What is that first kind of question? And, I, you know, I really, I struggle with that myself. And I was just saying that in Blast Theory, at a certain point, we went, we need to be on Twitter, you know, and that is the equivalent of the same thing. It's like not a very sensible place to start from, but that is where we started from. And then we were like, okay, so how are we going to do this Twitter thing? So it's like, you know, I think there's a sense in which um, sometimes you do start from, 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 from a, a, a position of trying to need to, to, to think um, uh, that, you, 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 know, that you, you, you can't always start from the best possible place. But I suppose what I was trying to encouraging in my remarks was that the best possible place to start from is thinking about how it changes your relationship with your audience so then I think the prosaic set of steps is about who are we trying to talk to talk with what is the dialogue that we are looking to try and open up and what would that actually look like um, and and uh, you know trying to trying to shape that um, very very clearly someone said this morning about you know being able to refine your problem very clearly is, is in itself a, a tremendous step forwards and I'm a, I'm a great believer in that, that that sense I think the biggest weakness I've just run a series of events in in the southeast that the Arts Council supported called ideas camps about how to try and sort of shape ideas that have digital elements and I think one of the biggest things I, I noticed is actually a lack of rigor among organizations and, and individuals that, that we're not used to applying things in a systematic, rigorous way of driving through numbers of iterations of ideas and designs and, 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 and being harsh with ourselves to, to, to grind that forward. I think there's, you know, we, 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 we sometimes jump on a little bit too quickly. And so I think, um, you know, there are, there are a whole range of different tools. I, you know, that might come under the umbrella of user-centered design about thinking about how you're how you're going to 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 reach out to 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 an audience and 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 engage them. What the call to action might be to bring them how and and so on. But the but the the key to any of those sort of systems is is to find a, a, something that's appropriate to you and your organisation and apply that rigorously in a series of steps as to what you're trying to do and how and so on. They're not. It's not rocket science, and I don't think. There's any kind of um, sort of method out there that gets you past asking those questions. My last remark would be that I think we find that we have to be insanely focused to be able to achieve things and that to be really early on in the process getting rid of anything that you say, oh, and wouldn't it be really cool if that is not something you should be doing? It's the thing that we have to do is, and that enables you to kind of make headway because you don't get bogged down in a, in a kind of endless wish list. I, I would add to that. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's really valuable. Even if you're starting from the question, what experience do we want the audience to have, which is quite a wide, broad question, you can still get goals from that, measurable goals from that. You can still kind of, and, and building that in from the start, even if you're, you've got kind of a wide, iterative process, 
where you're, where you're making and you're testing and, and it, maybe it's failing, you're learning from it and you're, you're, you're remaking it and retesting it and keep, keep going. But as long as you've got those kind of success measures uh, that, you've, that you've worked out at the beginning, which in the Holborn Museum's um, case was um, we wanted a certain audience to in, enjoy it. We wanted people to find out about um, the, the gardens out the back of the museum, which used to be this pleasure ground, and we wanted it to be a group experience. Um, but I really had to question them to get that brief out of them, um, because they did start with saying, we just want an app, make us an app. Um, so, so having those kind of goals, and then, and then when the pr project was finished, we were able to say, yes, we've done all of those, we've ticked all of those boxes, and, and, and it's done, and, and, it, and it was a success. Ben, do you want to say anything on that, specifically on having worked with a number of sort of largish companies and organizations, what's the best way for an organization to start a conversation with Thought Den? It's funny because I've, Matt mentioned that it's maybe a bad idea to say, wouldn't it be cool if? Um, but in fact, <laughs> that, maybe later on in the project it's a bad idea, but in fact we often start with that question and that's led to some of our best ideas, wouldn't it be cool if? Um, I mean, I'm a fan of thinking on a top level, you know, making sure your stars are aligned, your overarching goals. We want to make people feel something strongly. We want people to understand this content. But at this stage, I'd like to give credit to Tate, for example, for writing a very clear brief for Magic Tate Ball. They, they wanted artwork to be accessible outside of the gallery. That's a very specific thing. And they wanted people to access that in a playful way. Again, that's a very specific thing. I mean, on the sidelines, we, we sort of privately acknowledge that probably would result in an app, but the actual objectives were, were very clear, and then we were kind of given free reign to think creatively on that. Wouldn't it be cool if... Great. Let me see some more hands from you. Ah, here we go. Great. Yeah, Thank hi. you. Uh, just working. Phil Stenton, Falmouth University. Uh, and I was actually, yes, here, here, Ben. Uh, the wouldn't it be cool if is uh, a good thing to do. I think um, you have to, you know, it's, it's okay. I don't think there is an elephant in the room. I, I think, you know, digital technology or any technology um, can play its part across the whole range of activities from the performance to the business, as you know, Matt. Um, but so my question is, anyway, uh, is. Hassan said earlier, it's about R&D, and R&D is about failing quickly. Um, it's about experimenting, finding out what works and what doesn't. And, and I think it's, I thought, well, that can't be, that can't be novel for arts organizations because you're constantly trying things out, going, no, that's not working, go about this, that's, that's working, that's working. But then when it becomes, when you add in a technology that can broadcast what you're doing around the world, then it's a bit more frightening. Um, and so there's a sort of, you've got to manage that very well. And here's the Arts Council and Nestor and people going, have some money, go and make a fool of yourself, uh, fa fail quickly, uh, go and have a go. And it's a bit frightening. Um, so what I wanted to ask you each was to give us an example of something you did that failed. <laughs> start? Yeah, you start, please. Uh, so many. You know, and the, the, thing, the thing that I find about that is that you know, you th the thing that you think you've learned and finally sorted out is the thing that a couple of projects down the line you forget all over again. 
You know, we did a project with the Royal Opera House in, uh, uh, in 2008, working with young people out in Mile End, and we had this very wowy thing connecting the Royal Opera House to Mile End Park, and people were playing, young people were playing in Mile End Park with people online at the Royal Opera House, and we just completely screwed up our technical development. A technical developer left two or three weeks before the project was launched, and he said, it's fine, I've done X, Y, and Z, and it became clear that that wasn't quite true. And so, you know, we just got ourselves into a problem that just got compounded and compounded and compounded. And, you know, the thing with, with more complex technical projects is you can have so many micro problems interacting with one another that you cannot even see what's going on. And, you know, in that case, at the, the project launched at 1 p.m. on the Friday. At noon, I rang the Royal Opera House and said, I'm really sorry, but it doesn't work. And of course, having built up to that all morning, 15 minutes later, someone came in going, I think it might work, I think it might work. We'll go live and, you know, and we kind of, we, 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 got, we got through that. But I, you know, I can, I'm slightly sweating even just bringing myself back to that phone call on that, on that day. And it, yeah, it was, it was simple things of, of, you know, being a bit over ambitious, project management, technical development, like those sort of things. Yeah, I guess to... To touch on that, I'm not sure it's possible to actually spend 50 grand and completely fail. Um, firstly, we wouldn't be happy to do that as a matter of personal pride, I suppose, and reputation, but also your institution will have various stakeholders that will be holding us accountable. But that doesn't mean that along the way we didn't fail. And for example... Come on, Ben, get I, it out. <laughs> so... Don't drag uh, me into this. No, but no, we... we <laughs> Uh, um, we, we were testing a game yesterday at National Museum Scotland and it's all about running around the museum. It's called Capture the Museum and it, it, we feel like it's quite a new way of playing in the museum space. And um, we took a tech demo up there and it pretty much fell on its ass. It was, a, it was a disaster. This was our beta test. Having said that, we got a printer, we printed out all the questions and we got sellotape and string and you know, we actually made it work on the day for that test. Um, so yes, it was a failure, but you know, as a matter of personal pride, we tried to rescue it and um, learn from that failure. And we totally did. I mean, my, my background is in designing street games, so I'm used to things kind of falling apart at the last minute and having to gaffer tape them back together again. And that was kind of one of those, one of those times. But it worked, didn't it? The, the, the test that we did was still really useful. I mean, in terms of... But that's the, that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? To learn from that failure. Yeah, yeah. To pick and yourselves up, brush yourself down and think, okay, let's, let's move on. I, I think in terms of, um, for me personally, for a, a project that's, that, that sort of failed at first, um, but then got better as a result of it, uh, was, a, was a project I was involved in called Prison Break, which was this um, insane production. There were 70 performers and only 100 audience. Um, and we created a prison um, in this old sixth form college and people, players were kind of processed and put into prison uniforms and, and sentenced and chucked in a prison bus and given a prison guard and it was, it was a really intense experience um, and, and incredible in so many ways but on the first night, essentially the, the aim of the game was to escape um, at the end of the night which was at, at the time that we decided that they should be able to escape at a certain place where, where there's a hole in the fence um, and getaway cars waiting to kind of drive them away. 
Um, but because the thing was called prison break, the, the, thing, the, the really stupid thing that we'd overlook was that people would be trying to escape the whole time. They wouldn't just behave how we expected them to behave. They would just be trying to escape the whole time. And so um, we, we kind of, at one point, we always had a riot on our hands where we had so many people like, put back into their cells because they'd been trying to escape, um, which was ridiculous. So the, the, the second night and the third night, we, we, we tweaked and fixed. Well, the third night, it was incredible because we'd we redesigned the game element of it so that um, people should escape during the game. And we, we spread a rumor around the prisoners that there was a place called Paradise that they should try and escape to. And the prison guards were kind of saying, oh, what is this Paradise? Is it a drug? Is it a place? What is it? Um, so, you know, per permeating this, this, this rumor. Um, and Paradise, in fact, we set up a little room in the college where there was a party going on and this kind of drunk guy giving people cider and there were balloons and kind of rave music and stuff. And so people were escaping and they had a place to escape too and they were safely contained there and then they would he head back and kind of join back in with the performance. But, um, and, and that was really nice and it was just a, it was a tweak and, uh, but that's, a, that's, that's what iterative processes are all about. And on reflection, we should have, that first night should have been a scratch. We should have charged less for the ticket. I mean, it, we didn't charge very much for it anyway because it was a bit of a nuts thing. Um, but but that, that was a quite a good example of failing a bit, but then making it way better because of it. Great. We're going to take one more question here or comment from chat there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hi. Uh, Rob Hayton, um, Squeaky Mouse Productions uh, from the West Midlands. Yeah, I was just wondering, you know, with, with all the sort of in innovation that's um, that going on, well, the innovative projects that are going on, um, you know, whether you've sort of seen any like sort of step changes or any sort of revolutions within the actual sort of the partners taking parts in the project, so like the organisations or yourselves, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, it would be, you know, um, a good reason or, you know, a benefit for there to be, um, you know, for, the, for there to be like a step change in the in the way that you do things, like you know, have you had you know, have you found new put new business models through doing these projects, for example? So I, I might re-ask the question. Have you um, to, just to expand it a bit? So uh, have you seen changes within uh, the way your organisation work, or, and also with the way your partner organisations work? That's what, that's what I want to add to your question because in some cases your work with organizations who aren't used to that style of working. Um, and I, I think it may, it may be more of your cases because you're all, you're all very sort of uh, born in this type of interactive world. And so um, your, your, your work processes already reflect those. But have any of your people you've worked with changed as a result or the other way around? Have they sort of closed off as a result? I don't know. I mean, obviously, everything's fundamentally changed. I mean, I, I, I presume everyone in this, every, every person in this room will be able to remember a time when people talked dismissively about email as if it was something that wouldn't necessarily involve them. You know, I remember really clearly in the, in the 90s, people in the arts talking about that, sort of, you know, t suggesting that email was something that only nerds did. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's fundamentally changed. I suppose the thing about partnerships, I would say, is that the thing that we particularly gained is because of looking at them what we do as having a strong research element we've been able to build partnerships with universities and with companies like like the BBC or British Telecom or Sony and in different at different points in our history that have 
dramatically enabled us to learn from those relationships. So the biggest thing that we've been able to do is, 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 is get through the door sometimes into those organizations and pick things up for good or for ill, you know, not always um, successfully. You know, sometimes they've introduced things that have been r really problematic. But those kinds of partnerships have, have opened us up to how other people are doing research and development. Because when I talk about working with those companies, we're talking, with the R, talking about the R&D wings of those companies. So they're not people who are actually flogging phones or PlayStations. You know, they're people who are similarly to, to, to us in this room. They're attending conferences, thinking five years and ten years ahead about how, where, the, where the future will be. So um, that, that would be my main kind of thought about, about those partnerships. Any closing comments, Rosie or Ben? Um, in terms of that question... Or just... Oh, just to generally say anything. <laughs> um, well, in terms of that question, um, probably the, the historian that we worked with from um, University of the West of England, Dr. Steve Poole, uh, on this project, um, we, we, we both... We, we influenced each other's practices uh, quite strongly. Um, it, it was great working with a proper academic um, and seeing... The, the way that he, he kind of does his incredible research, the, 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 the history from below stuff that he's really interested in and really getting into that because that, that had a load of parallels with the kind of, um, kind of street game stuff that, that, that we were doing where we wanted um, normal people to become the, the, the kind of protagonists in the story that was going on and, and his, his research is about kind of finding normal people and, and bringing them back to life and kind of telling people, you know, teaching about it. But his, his way of teaching is, is through lecture um, and writing articles. And um, the thing that this project did for him is that it, it really opened up... I mean, this is, this is what he's told me. I'm not just speaking for him. Um, but, it, but it really opened up the way that he could see that history could be um, uh, interpreted for, for the general public and the kind of, that these, these stories could be spread in a kind of exciting and interesting and, and visceral kind of way because people got, get really involved with these stories. Um, and so now he's like one of our best advocates and he's our associate historian and he's kind of, I don't know, we've got, we're kind of, he's, he's totally involved now with the company, which is, which is great. Um, so that was kind of a, trans, a transformation on both sides, really. Ben, any quick comments? Yeah, on, on, on the topic of change, I think the fact that so many of us are here and demonstrating an appetite for change is, is a good thing and it's, it's happening and, and I think there are more and more exciting projects coming out of this sector and there will continue to be exciting projects. Um, but technology will continue to move faster than we can adapt to it, I think. And, and so I'm, I look to, to the children and, and young people today to see who's, who's doing the most interesting work because they're the digital natives. I mean, we're all coming to this as immigrants, largely speaking to this to, you know, exciting new technology. And I think the institutions that are doing exciting things with children in terms of um, learning and technology engagement are, are the ones demonstrating the most change on an institutional level. Um, so that's, that's my thought. Look to the youth. <laughs> Can I just bounce one thing back off that, which is also, I just think it's worth just remembering that we have an amazing history in the United Kingdom of work in this field and that globally we have been real pioneers going right the way back to Roy Asker in the, in the 1960s. There are a whole bunch of organizations in this room I know or people who used to work for or still do work for, former or Shinkansen or organizations like that who were doing digital projects 
back in the, you know, from the late 80s through the 90s. And that, again, if you're thinking about starting points, you could do worse than to look at, for example, a project called King's Cross Project by Heath Bunting, which was done in 1994, you know, one of the very earliest internet projects, art projects in the UK, but a fantastic realization of what, of, of, of the possibilities. And, you know, we have a really strong tradition of great digital practice in this country and that, um, you know, we should always acknowledge that foundation on which we, we, we build. Thank you, Matt. A lovely note to end up this session on. So. Um, thank you all for your time and attention. Um, we now have a, a little coffee break, so please join me for that, and also join me in a quick round of applause for everyone. For